Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. Today on the Matt Wall Show, we will discuss the problem of whiteness. I don't think whiteness is a problem, but we're told that it is. In fact, a recent uh, paper in the Psychoanalytic Journal argues that it's really a disease which has to be cured. So we'll talk about that. Also, five headlines, including the cop who flipped a pregnant woman's car on the highway because she didn't pull over fast enough during a traffic stop. Is that proper procedure? And Dr. Fauci claims that he himself is science made flesh. To question him is to question science. And our daily cancellation will deal with the New York Times article that generated controversy because it supposedly suggested that you shouldn't have a lot of obese or depressed friends. People didn't like that for some reason, but I think it actually makes a good point. I'll explain why that and much more today on The Matt Wall Show. Now a word from Legacy Box. You know, those of us who are... Uh, of a, of a certain age, of a ripe old age, ancient and decrepit, like over the age of 30, we may have a lot of uh, family family memories that uh, are sort of trapped now on antiquated technology, camcorder tapes, physical pictures. I hate to say physical pictures, antiquated technology, but it sort of is. Um, and, uh, and the problem is those things degrade, they get destroyed, they, you can lose them, you don't have easy access to them. So what do you do about that? Well, you get Legacy Box. Legacy Box is a super simple mail-in service to have all of your videotapes, camcorder tapes, film reels, and pictures digitally preserved on a thumb drive, DVD, or the cloud. Legacy Box is a way for you to easily and affordably digitally preserve your past. Uh, your past. And the process is very, very simple. I've done it myself. All you gotta do is just pack up your stuff, send it out. Their team digitizes everything, they send it back to you. And uh, it really is that easy. So you've got to do this, and, and I, w- I wouldn't wait. I would do it now. You can get started preserving your family's legacy today. Go to LegacyBox.com Walsh to get an incredible 50% off your first order. But today, buy today to take advantage of this exclusive offer. Send in when you're ready. Legacy Box is great for you. It's great for someone you love. So again, go to LegacyBox.com Walsh and save 50% while supplies last. One of the most consequential, and as we'll see most dangerous innovations of America's race hustler constituency is the invention of the term whiteness. Now, we used to hear constant condemnations of alleged white supremacy, even though white supremacy as a belief system is nearly non-existent in this country. And as a legal principle, it's entirely non-existent. White supremacists, Klan members, neo-Nazis and the like are small, scattered, insignificant. As for the law, there are no laws on the books today anywhere in any state or jurisdiction that enshrine or codify white supremacy, despite what you may have heard. Of course, we still hear about this supposed problem of white supremacy, but many of those who once focused on fighting that make-believe scourge have moved on and are these days intent on slaying the dragon known as whiteness. Increasingly, advocates for so-called racial justice have widened their lens beyond white supremacy to now include this much broader category— which would seem to encompass all white people. White supremacy is a belief system. It's a fringe belief system, but it's a belief system all the same. Whiteness, on the other hand, in its most literal sense, simply means the state or quality of being white. And this sheds disturbing light on, for example, all of the college courses with titles like The Problem of Whiteness and the calls from academics and activists to, quote, abolish whiteness. It's not simply white supremacy they're after anymore, but whiteness itself, the state and quality of being a white person. Recall that now infamous segment with uh, Mara Gay on MSNBC where she discusses her terror at seeing pickup trucks with American flags. And everybody zeroed in on those comments because they were deranged and idiotic. But I actually think the bigger problem was something that we kind of missed. It was this part right here. The reality is here that uh, we have a large percentage of the American population. I don't know how big it is, but we have tens of millions of Trump voters who uh, continue to believe that their rights as citizens are under threat by simple virtue of having to share the democracy with others. 
Um, I think uh, as long as they see Americanness as the same as one with whiteness, this is going to continue. We have to figure out how to get every American a place at the table in this democracy, but how to separate Americanness, America, from whiteness. Separate America from whiteness. How do you intend to do that? And what should be done with all of us white people once we've been separated? This sort of talk begins to sound almost murderous. And if you think that's an overstatement, keep listening because it gets worse. The way that race activists get around the obviously horrific implications of this kind of talk is the same way they get around everything else. By manipulating language to obscure the meaning of the words that they use. And that's why if you go beyond the dictionary and you try to find a definition of whiteness from the people who use it so often, you'll end up with a lot of hazy, indeterminate ramblings like this from the Alberta Civil Liberties Research Center, quoting a feminist sociologist named Ruth Frankenberg. Uh, It says, whiteness is, quote, a dominant cultural space with enormous political significance with the purpose to keep others on the margin. Okay. If that doesn't clear things up, the National Museum of African American History and Culture has this to say about the cancer known as whiteness, quote, whiteness and white racialized identity refer to the way that white people, their customs, culture, and beliefs operate as the standard by which all other groups are compared. Whiteness is also at the core of understanding race in America. Whiteness and the normalization of white white racial identity throughout America's history have created a culture where non-white persons are seen as inferior or abnormal. This White dominant culture also operates as a social mechanism that grants advantages to white people since they can navigate society both by feeling normal and being viewed as normal. Persons who identify as white rarely have to think about their racial identity because they live within a culture where whiteness has been normalized, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Meanwhile, Dr. Monica T. Williams writes for Psychology Today that whiteness is, quote, an unfairly privileged exclusionary category based on physical features, most notably a lack of melanin. So that brings us back to whiteness as the state and quality of being white. For this reason, uh, the good doctor explains, white people are not allowed to be proud of their racial identity. She says that she will, in her magnanimity, um, per- permit you to be proud of, say, your specific German heritage. Or, because uh, you know, there's nothing problematic there, apparently. Or your French-Canadian culture. But you must not be proud to be white in general because, quote, whiteness is a forced group membership that originated by oppressing people of color. I mean, whiteness itself, the physical state of whiteness originated through oppression. That's what she says. But can uh, black people like herself be proud of their race? Why? Well, of course they can. She says, quote, people may then ask, why is it okay to be proud of being black but not white? This is because pride in blackness represents pride in the accomplishments and resilience of a racialized group in the face of continual oppression. It is healthy for black people to celebrate these small victories to maintain their self-esteem despite pervasive social messages of inferiority. Well, that's it then. A hallowed mental health professional has spoken. It's healthy for black people to be proud of who they are, but it's not healthy for white people. The most healthy mental state for a white person is one of suffocating never-ending guilt and shame. This view has become especially common among psychiatrists, psychologists, and psychoanalysts. Um, The entire psycho industry seems to be fueled by two primary assumptions. Number one, gender is fluid, and number two, whiteness is bad. These are also the two primary assumptions of academia, the media, corporate America, and the United States government. But it's especially hazardous in the mental health field because these are the professionals to whom the most mentally vulnerable people are entrusted. And that gives us even more of a reason to be equal parts disgusted and terrified by a paper very recently published in the distinguished, allegedly, um, and also peer-reviewed journal of the American Psychoanalytic Association. In the paper, a guy named Dr. Donald Moss, who's a faculty member of the San Francisco Center for Psychoanalysis and the New York Psychoanalytic Institute, shares his thoughts on the topic of, quote, having whiteness. Now, if the phrase having whiteness makes white identity sound like a disease, as if someone might have whiteness in the same way that they have cancer or chickenpox, well, that's exactly the point. Here is the abstract. It says, quote, 
Whiteness is a condition one first acquires and then one has. A malignant, parasitic-like condition to which white people have a particular susceptibility. The condition is foundational, generating characteristics, character, characteristic ways of being in one's body, in one's mind, and in one's world. Parasitic whiteness renders its most its uh, hosts its hosts appetites voracious, insatiable, and perverse. These deformed appetites particularly target non-white people. Once established, these appetites are nearly impossible to eliminate. Effective treatments of whiteness consists of a combination of psychic and social historical interventions. Such interventions can reasonably aim only to reshape whiteness's infiltrated appetites, to reduce their intensity, redistribute their aims, and occasionally turn those aims towards the work of reparation. When remembered and represented, the ravages wreaked by the chronic condition can function either as a warning, never again, or as a temptation, great again. Memorialization alone, therefore, is no guarantee against regression. Listen to this part. There is not yet a permanent cure. A permanent cure for whiteness. And you thought my choice of the word murderous was an exaggeration. In fact, it was an understatement. Probably should have said genocidal. Here we have medical professionals speaking openly about finding a permanent cure for a certain racial identity. They are just one half step away from calling it a final solution. And if this was not all bone shelling enough, I should mention that Dr. Moss has been delivering his thoughts on whiteness, on having the whiteness disease in talks to college students, psychoanalysts, and social workers. Tickets are only $40, by the way, if you're interested. Now, you don't really need to go back very far in history to see where this sort of thing leads. Our fallen species has tragically attempted many experiments through the centuries with casting an entire group or race of people as villains, as subhumans, as scapegoats, as the cause of all social ills. This has happened many times throughout history. And so we know that it never results in anything but bloodshed and misery. It, it can't possibly come to any other conclusion. There is never a happy ending to this kind of thing. It's impossible. The final chapter of this book is written in advance. But we keep making the same mistake anyway. Now let's get to our five headlines. I think over the past year, especially, people have really been thinking about uh, being prepared in the event of an emergency. And uh, now is certainly a better time than ever to be prepared with long-term nutritional food options. And that's what ReadyWise is all about. ReadyWise has many options like emergency meals that you might need. They've also got freeze-dried fruits and vegetables for convenient on-the-go nutrition. They've also got adventure meals uh, if you, you know, especially in the summertime, you're going out hiking and camping, whatever it is, other outdoor activities, you can bring those with you as well. ReadyWise makes being prepared simple and affordable. You can order online and have nutritious meals shipped directly to your doorstep. When government resources are strained, it can be days, if not weeks, before fresh food is available. You don't want to put yourself in a position where you're relying on the government to help you. We know that uh, they are, are not always exactly Johnny on the spot. In fact, oftentimes they're not. ReadyWise uses the finest ingredients and latest food preparation technology to ensure optimal taste and freshness. So if you want to take advantage of this, this week my listeners can get 10% off at readywise.com when entering Walsh at checkout or by calling 855-475-3089. ReadyWise is a 30-day no-questions-asked return policy, so there's no risk in taking the initiative to get you and your family prepared today. That's ReadyWise, R-E-A-D-Y-W-I-S-E.com, promo code Walsh, to get 10% off. All right. You know, one, uh, I, I'm just realizing... On a slightly less important topic, one of the disadvantages of having our Stasi new camera angle uh, is that they've taken away my fake Daily Wire family, which I just realized they've been taken. I had my, you know, my pictures here of my fake friends and family that were assigned to me when I came to the Daily Wire. I don't. Even, here's the. Here's one of the pictures. Why can't this still be on my desk? There's there's my um, there's Ger Gertrude and and uh, Felix. The guy is Gertrude. Don't make assumptions on their tandem bicycle. I would look at this picture every day and it would bring me, it would warm my heart and bring me joy to remember my times with these imaginary friends. And now I can't have them. Um, all right. I think I just broke it. Okay. So you guys know that 
uh, we are defenders and uh, supporters of the police over here on the Matt Wall Show. And um, obviously, though, supporting and defending the police when they're being unjustly attacked, which happens a lot. Uh, but that also doesn't mean that uh, there's never an occasion where a cop does a bad thing. Obviously, that does happen. And when that does happen, they should be held accountable. Now, the, the problem is that this, this, the word accountability, we will remember LeBron James tweeted out the picture of a, of a cop who, who saved a, a black girl's life by shooting another black girl who was trying to stab her to death. And he had that word accountability put in his, his, uh, the, the cop's picture out there putting his life in jeopardy, potentially. So for the, the race hustlers and BLM and guys like LeBron James, uh, accountability for police means that they're always wrong, no matter what they do. Even if they act heroically and save someone's life, they're still wrong and their lives should be destroyed. That's what they mean when they say accountability. And that's a problem because there is such a thing as actual accountability, and it is important for everybody and especially for agents of the state. I mean, police officers are agents of the state. That's their job. And the badge and the gun confers power and authority. And it's important for us as members of an allegedly free society to hold agents of the state responsible and accountable when they actually violate, um, you know, vi- violate their, their, their duties and, and uh, abuse their power. So here's one such case. This is from Fox. It says, an Arkansas woman is suing an Arkansas state police officer who she says, quote, negligently performed a pursuit intervention technique, pit maneuver, that resulted in her car flipping over on the highway at 60 miles per hour in July of 2020. We have the video. We'll play it in a second here. Her name is uh, Nicole Harper. She was pregnant at the time. And she was clocked going 84 miles an hour in a 70 mile per hour zone last summer on the highway. So she's going 84 to 70. Uh, I, I confess I've gone, I, I have off, and I'm not saying that you should do this. This is not a recommendation, but uh, when, when, the, when the speed limit gets to 70, I kind of treat that as no speed limit at all. I figure once you get to that point, the speed limit's more of a suggestion. Again, I'm not saying that's actually the law. I, I confess I, I will treat it that way. So I've uh, have many times gone over 84, certainly in a 70. Uh, it's not that, you know, it's to be, especially on a sort of empty highway going 84 to 70. It's, I guess the point is there's no reason to think by the fact that she's going 84 to 70 that she's some sort of violent, dangerous criminal. There's no reason to think that this is anything more than a normal, usually law-abiding American who's just committing a rather minor traffic, traffic infraction. But that's not how she was treated. Within seconds of Arkansas State Police Officer Rodney Dunn turning on his patrol cruiser's overhead lights, Harper pulled over to the right lane, turned on her emergency blinkers, and slowed to 60 miles per hour. In fact, let's just play. Let's start playing this now. Nicole Harper was driving home on the I-67 and is alleged to have been clocked for speeding by Senior Corporal Rodney Dunn, who claims that she fled. But in the video, we see an obvious decrease in speed as Harper pulls into the right lane and activates her turn signal. She claims it was to indicate she was going to exit the interstate, as the area had a reduced shoulder, regardless of Harper's actions and indications that she would stop. Corporal Dunn initiates a pit maneuver. Okay, so there he he is going up. He's He's gonna kinda ram into the car. That just yep, and then it's good. This is on the highway. Okay, all right. So he he rams the car. He does the pit maneuver, and this is something you see if you watch. You know, you see videos of, of high speed chases and they're pursuing a violent criminal. In fact, I mean, like I I should say that oftentimes you watch these these chases. And they don't do that. They'll, they'll follow a criminal, someone who they know is a violent felon, a fugitive or whatever. They'll follow them for miles and miles and miles before they resort to something like that. Um, and sometimes it's not even a high-speed chase. You'll see, these, you'll see these, the cars are going away like 40 miles an hour and the cops are all just uh, following behind because oftentimes they're reluctant to execute a maneuver like that, even if it is a known violent criminal, because you might kill someone doing it. 
Here they did it, this, this officer did it to this woman just because of a speeding violation. And now we have, and this, this also makes it all the more disturbing, I think. We have, um, you can hear the audio now. You don't really see it. You don't see it. But here is the officer after this woman crawls out of the wreckage. Here's how that interaction happened. Why didn't you stop? Because I didn't feel like it was raining. Well, this is where you ended up. Are you the only one in the vehicle? Yes. Okay. Well, ma'am, you've got to pull over when we stop. When people don't stop for emergency vehicles, we end this right here, right now, before you get further into congested traffic. All you had to do was slow down and stop. I did slow down. I turned on my hazards. Yeah, this is just completely insane. Um, <laughs> though, okay. And, and you hear him that he doesn't even appear to be concerned. It was a, she says she's pregnant. You flipped her vehicle. And he's not even saying, are you okay? He says, well, hey, this is what happens. You didn't pull over right away. And you can clearly see in the video that it is a, it's a reduced shoulder. There's not a lot of room. So she probably figured it's, it's, it's nighttime. It's dark. Uh, there's a reduced shoulder, not a lot of room. Uh, it's not safe to pull over. And so what she does instead, and you saw it in the video, she does, she, she goes into the right lane. She reduces her speed. She puts on her hazards, clearly signaling that she is trying to comply. She's just looking for a safe place. And it's not like she went for 30 minutes. Two minutes later, he rams the car and flips her. She hadn't even made it to an exit yet. There was an exit a mile up the road when he flipped the car. Clearly, she's looking for an exit, obviously. And he flips it. By the way, before anyone would consider defending the police on this one, um, here's the Department of Public Safety in Arkansas. They have a nice handy document telling you what to do when you are stopped by law enforcement. This is the Department of of, of Safety in Arkansas. This is what they say. Um, What to do when you're stopped by a law enforcement officer. Number one. Pull over to the right side of the road. Activate your turn signal or emergency flashers to indicate to the officer that you're seeking a safe place to stop. That's it. That's exactly what she did. She put on the indication that she's seeking a safe place. So the officer should know from that signal, which she is following the law and doing it, that she's looking for a safe place. And if she hasn't stopped yet, it's because she doesn't think this looks safe. And I would agree with her. If I was in her spot, I would have done exactly the same thing. If there's, a, if there's a small shoulder that barely fits a vehicle and it's dark on a highway when other cars are going 70 miles an hour, I'm not pulling over right there. It's not only unsafe for you, it's unsafe for the officer too. He could get clipped because he's going to, while he's engaging with you, he's going to be standing in the, in the highway in a lane. I, if I were her, I would have thought for his sake, I need to go and pull somewhere where there's enough room for him at least to stand next to the car and talk to me without standing in a in, in, in a lane on a dark highway. That, that, this to me, is, I mean, it's totally unexcusable. And I would put this in the, I, you know, I would put this in the category of, as far as, and by the way, this, this cop still has a job. I mean, this is one, not only should he lose his job, but he should be on, this should be criminal charges. There are a lot of people online saying this is attempted murder. It's clearly not attempted murder. I don't think he was trying to kill her, but it's criminal negligence because he obviously didn't care that much if he did. Um, I would put this in the in the uh, in the category because it's like a Daniel Shaver Shaver, a Titania Jefferson. She was the woman who was sitting in her own house minding her business, and she was shot through the window by a cop. Now, in both those cases, somebody was killed. Nobody was here, thank God. But um, this is this is like that. Those cases in in just in being completely indefensible, and obviously instances of a police officer abusing his power. Um, so. She's going to be a very rich woman after this, and she deserves to be. Thank God, as far as I know, the baby was okay. It's not mentioned in the article. I assume if she suffered a miscarriage, that would be mentioned in, in the lawsuit. So I, I, I've never seen anything like that. And that's another important point, though, right? Because does, is this case, does this case mean that there needs to be sweeping reforms to law enforcement across the nation? Um Unless you're telling me this happens all the time. This is the first time I've ever seen anything like that. I don't know about you. This seems to be one officer 
who did something that almost no other police officer would do in that situation. So the changes and penalties should fall to him specifically. All right. Let's go to uh, number two. We have footage. just want to show you this. Footage from a uh, BLM protest in Chicago. Or whatever you call this. I think we have the footage here. This is from um, a few days ago. Okay, here we go. I just want to show you this. Now, here, here's a, a police officer. He's driving along. He's going slowly. This is a police officer who's actually trying to preserve human life. Um, but you've got the, uh, the protesters, the activists for racial justice, on top of the police cruiser twerking. There's like three, three of these uh, women on top of the police cruiser twerking. And, of course, you see, you see footage like this all the time at these BLM protests slash riots. Um, and I, I don't even know what they were protesting over. It doesn't matter. It was almost certainly something stupid. But is, you see that, and the question is always, is, is this how you behave when you're scared to death of the police? Because these are the same people. The reason they're out there is that they're saying that the cops are hunting them and, and killing them and everything. Um, is, so if you're terrified of police officers, is that what you do? You get up on a police cru- cruiser and twerk? What is this, twerking as a defense mechanism? I'll, for me, I'll just say there, there have only been a few times in my life, maybe, when I've gotten so scared that I twerked as a defense mechanism. It's not common. And, and you might argue that the fact that they're behaving that way shows that they have zero fear of the police at all. Um, all right, number three. Now let's get to this. Dr. Fauci. I don't think we need any real setup uh, to this. I just want to play this for you. And uh, it kind of speaks for itself. Here it is. What is your level of concern that we're going to discredit public health officials to the point of, you know, look at Russia. They actually have a good vaccine and none of their citizens will take it because they don't trust their own government. Right. It's very dangerous, Chuck, because a lot of what you're seeing as attacks on me, quite frankly, are attacks on science. Because all of the things that I have spoken about consistently from the very beginning have been fundamentally based on science. Sometimes those things were inconvenient truths for people and there was pushback against me. So if you are trying to, you know, get at me as a public health official and a scientist, you're really attacking not only Dr. Anthony Fauci, you're attacking science. And anybody that looks at what's going on clearly sees that. You have to be asleep not to see that. That is what's going on. Science and the truth are being attacked. I am science. I am science. You attack me, you attack science. My God in heaven. This is full-blown megalomania. Not a surprise coming from him. We already knew that that was the case for him. But the only difference here is that usually Fauci, while he's clearly all along been a narcissist and a megalomaniac, drunk on his own power and everything else, that's been very clear all along, he, he, he would usually still try to hide behind this sweet old grandfather, I'm going to be the reasonable guy thing. And he'll, and he'll do that while um, supporting you know, uh, policies and, and uh, making statements that result in you know, untold suffering of, of millions of Americans. But usually he hides behind that. And this is one of those ripping the mask off moments where he, he just comes out and says, if you attack me, you attack truth and science. This is North Korea level stuff. Where if you, if you criticize a public official, someone who works for the government, you are criticizing truth itself. Just think about what it requires psychologically to not only think that, but to say it out loud on TV. I guess he's he's just done with it because he uh, he knows that he's Dr. Fauci, damn it, and you're not supposed to criticize him. 
And he's tired of being criticized because he's always right. Even if he says contradictory things. Even if he says one thing one minute, an op- a, a completely contradictory thing the next minute. Meanwhile, he's, he's emailing and sending private emails that contradict both of the things that he just that he said publicly. It's all science. It's all truth. How does that work exactly? Because if Dr. Fauci is contradicting himself and disagreeing with himself, and we want to make sure that we agree with Dr. Fauci all the time, then inevitably we're also going to, to, to agree with Dr. Fauci is also to disagree with him. Because whatever he's saying now, it's almost certain that he said the opposite of that at some other point. So what do I do? If I want to make sure that I'm a good, a good uh, cult member and I stay loyal to Dr. Fauci, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. If he's saying, you know, wear a mask now, but before he said, no, you don't need to wear a mask and you shouldn't wear one. So to agree with him now, I'm, I'm contradicting the, the Dr. Fauci of, uh, of March 2020. Well, I guess the answer to that riddle is that the truth and the science changes whatever he says that it does. This is total madness, of course. Uh, in, in reality, as we have tried to establish many times, science is a process. Science is not an institution. Okay, it is, it is not a, a deity speaking from on high. Science is not Mount Olympus. Um, science is not a, a, you know, a sage or a guru that you, you climb a mountain and you consult, oh, dear science, tell us the truth. And science certainly is not a person. And most certainly is not a person who works with government. It's a process of discovering the, the uh, in, in understanding the way that the physical world works. That's what science is. And an important part of the scientific process is asking questions and being critical. Critical not in the sense of being insulting, although if you want to be insulting to Dr. Fauci, go for it. There's a lot to insult. But critical in the sense of you know, not simply accepting everything that you're told. That is, the uns- that is a, an anti-scientific approach. But that's how Dr. Fauci views himself. And that's how he's been treated. Where he is the science. All right, next, this is from the Daily Caller. It says, establishment media has been conspicuously silent on Hunter Biden's alleged use of the N-word in text messages obtained by the Daily Mail and reported on Tuesday. Searching NBC News, the Washington Post, CNN, and the New York Times returns no results related to the text messages. The story has been covered by the Daily Caller, Forbes, Fox News, the New York Post, and other outlets. Um, NBC News, the Washington Post, CNN, and the New York Times did not respond to requests for comment. Just days after President Joe Biden delivered an emotional anti-racism speech in Tulsa, Oklahoma, the Daily Mail published text messages where Hunter Biden allegedly called his white lawyer the N-word and talked about his penis. In one text message, Hunter Biden reportedly asked his lawyer, corporate attorney George Mazayers, how much money he owed and said, N-word, you better not be charging me Hennessy rates. Mazayers reportedly replied, that made me snarf my coffee. Snarf? I'm way more concerned with, by the use of the word snarf here than the N-word, because I don't know what that word means exactly. Um, Hunter Biden addressed his white lawyer as uh, the N-word, with an A at the end, multiple times. Um, used phrases like, true dat, N-word, and bantered, I only love you because you're black. Okay. And these were text messages, I think, that date back to like 20, 2018. And uh, it, as of the writing of this da- Daily Caller article, this story had not been reported, as they said, um, in any of these mainstream media outlets. They just ignored it completely. It's not even like they reported it and then buried it, or they just tossed off a, uh, a little short two-paragraph story and then buried it. No, they, they've ignored it entirely. Um. And yeah, so I'm kind of of two minds on this. Because on one hand, if this was Don Jr. and his text messages saying the N-word, even, yeah, he's using the N-word here 
in a jovial, joking manner. And he's talking to and about a white person. Even so, we all know that if this was Don Jr. or really any other prominent conservative and um, they were found to have used the N-word in that context or any context, uh, it would be a huge story and their life would be destroyed and everything else, right? We, we all know that. And we've been told many times by the cultural powers that be that context doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what uh, context you use the word in. Papa John lost his job. He lost everything and is now a pariah. Because he used the N-word just in quoting somebody else who used it. And in the context of using it, he was actually, he was critical of the person for using it. And he lost his job for that. So, um, but we also know that Papa John was, uh, was uh, I don't know if he's actually a Republican, but he was, he was a suspected Republican. So there's a, definitely a double standard here. That's for sure. However, um, it also doesn't matter at all what, what words Hunter Biden used in a text message exchange. I don't care at all. It does not matter. And I also have to confess to you, and I know I'm going to put myself in the minority a little bit among conservatives and especially conservatives in media. Um, and I've been saying this since the campaign. I, I don't fully understand the right's focus on Hunter Biden. Um, I think it's a bad political strategy. I don't think it works because, of course, all, all the people on the right who are sort of like feigning offense over this, they're not really offended because they know who cares. Doesn't matter at all. Um, but they're, they're kind of feigning it because they're trying to make a point, And I get that. But at the same time, I just the, the focus on Hunter Biden, I think, is. Is kind of foolish. Uh, you're not going to land any hits on Joe Biden by talking about his loser crackhead son, who's, who's not a public official, is not in the White House officially, right? Or hasn't, or I should say, has not been given a job in the administration, as far as I know. You know, uh, Donald Trump gave a lot of his kids jo- official jobs in the administration. Hunter Biden hasn't been given that, as far as I know. Um, and uh, we all understand that he's a loser. So to keep going back to this well of, look at this other loser thing that Hunter Biden did. It just doesn't, nobody cares. Yeah, the media is going to ignore it, but I'm kind of ignoring it too. And I'm not left-wing media, but simply because I don't think it matters. And whatever political advantage you think you get by talking about Hunter Biden, I don't think it's there. I said this during the campaign with with, uh, the final weeks of the campaign. And it's time to make our our closing argument against Joe Biden, right? And what were so many people in right-wing media doing? Their closing argument was all about Hunter Biden's laptop. And I'm not saying that that wasn't a story. I'm not saying there wasn't potentially a scandal there. I just don't think that that should have been the closing argument. And I said that, and I think I was proven right. The arguments against Joe Biden should be about Joe Biden himself. And there's a lot that could be said. And about his administration. All right, let's move now to reading the YouTube comments. Uh, this one says, I don't understand why no one supports Matt's proposal to restrict access to voting to those who can pass a test. I might not even qualify, and I'm still in favor of it. Yeah, I said that no one, that I'm very much on, on the margins, on the, on the fringes, uh, as someone who actually believes in restricting voting rights based on competence, right? Um, I'm on the fringes in terms of you know, people in the public eye. But just average people on the street, I think, yeah, I think actually if you talk to them, a lot of them will say, that actually makes a lot of sense to have some sort of test, some sort of way to weed out people from the voting booth who are absolute ignoramuses. So I guess I should have qualified that. Um, Mr. Train says, Mr. Walsh, you're starting to, or M Train, I should say, you're starting to grow on me. I didn't really care for your style in the beginning. Your sarcasm and humor, I find, more necessary than originally realized. Well, it took you this long to understand that. And for that reason, you're banned. Uh, But thanks. Thanks for being here anyway. Big Mama says, Matt, I've got four kids like you. Our oldest is six and our youngest is almost two. He woke up and started singing Good God Almighty from his crib. And it quickly got them all singing and dancing along. It was the most glorious way to wake up. 
It is, you know, uh, yeah, I talked yesterday about how my kids, my kids wake up singing every single morning, early in the morning, like before, before, before sunrise sometimes. And I, I realize objectively that it's an, a very sweet and innocent thing and a beautiful thing because they're so excited. And then I feel bad when I'm annoyed by it. I, I feel bad being annoyed by my kids' joy. But it's just when I'm woken up at 5.30 a.m., even if I'm being woken up by joy, it's hard to not be a little bit annoyed. Um, and finally, Gregory Fairchild says, Matt, just watch two hours of History Channel on the Aztecs, and they boast of them as a very moral society who took their religion very seriously. Well, they did take it seriously to the tune of, uh, you know, ripping out people's hearts left and right. They emphasized Aztecs were not savages. Funny how they go through amazing acrobatics to downplay filleting the skin of people and wearing it as a fertility ritual. Not to mention cutting the beating hearts out of many uh, people who are young children that must be made to cry before killing. No savages there. What they would consider savage scares me. Yeah, that's, that, that is certainly savage behavior. And it doesn't matter who's doing it. We, we should be able to agree with that. But the, the real annoying thing with something like the Aztecs, you look at the barbarity, um, the... Uh, the oppression inflicted by civilizations like the Aztec civilization. The real excuse that we're given from the left is that we should see them in it. We should see that in a historical context. That's what we're told. I mean, you know, we can't judge them by the standards of today. So the Aztecs are capturing thousands and thousands of people at a time, dragging them up the temple steps, putting them on the stone slab, pulling out the knife, ripping out their heart while they're still alive. Uh, yeah, they did that, but it's, you know, them doing that in the 1400s is different than if someone did it today. That's the argument. And I could almost go along with that. Now, it was still evil in the 1400s, and they should have known better. But I could go along with the idea that we should apply some historical perspective, even to something as horrific as that, if you were also applying historical perspective to everyone else. But when it comes to the Spanish or any other European settlers, um, they don't get the advantage of historical perspective. So if we're talking about Indians, we, we should not judge them by the standards of today. If we're talking about white people of, uh, or Europeans of 500, 600 years ago, they get judged by the standards of today. That's the problem. That is the definition of a double standard. You know, it's no secret that the amount of content from The Daily Wire is growing rapidly, both in numbers and in quality, uh, from our investigative journalism to our sports column to uh, now my incredibly altruistic podcast, where I save abuelas, I save the world, really, change the world, one abuela at a time. There's just so much to see, so much to hear and read, so much content. I mean, it's it's like a sweatshop here. It's uh, They've got us chained to our desks. They're saying, put out the content, more content. Um and not exactly like that, but almost. And you gotta you gotta be a part of it. You wanna be part of the action. So now you can get it all on the Daily Wire app. Even if you're not a Daily Wire subscriber, you'll be the first to know what's trending with mobile notifications for the latest news and all of your favorite content only a touch away. So download the Daily Wire app and stay up to speed with the freshest conservative voices around, no matter where you are. Speaking of more content, um, if you're worried about not getting enough of my incredibly reasonable and wise takes and opinions, especially um, concerning aliens and abuelas. Those are, those are like the two things I focus on, but other issues as well. Then you don't need to fear any longer. That's because I've started a weekly newsletter, which will grace your inbox once a week with some tips, fun facts, updates, an introspective look into the dark inner workings of my mind and, um, and the occasional mean tweet as well. It's all in there. It's really just rambling stream of consciousness, but that's what the, that's what the kids want with the newsletters these days, I'm told. So you saw the lengths I'm willing to go for Abuelas. Uh, so what lengths will I go for a newsletter for you? You got to find out. So go to dailywire.com slash Matt Walsh report and subscribe to my newsletter right now. Again, that's uh, dailywire.com slash Matt Walsh report. Go there right now. Right now. Go. Now it's time for our daily cancellation. Today for our daily cancellation, we're going to cancel all of the people who are outraged by a certain New York Times article, which was published at some point 
last week. The title of the editorial is How to Rearrange Your Post-Pandemic Friendscape. And it was written by someone named Kate Murphy. Now, in the article, Murphy talks about the changes we might consider making to our social lives as we emerge from hibernation and enter back into the post-pandemic world. Before we get to the um, controversial part, here's a little bit of what she has to say. She says, as pandemic restrictions ease in the United States, and we may once again belly up to an all-you-can-eat buffet of social activity, the question is, will we pile our plates and gorge or be more selective and stick to what nourishes and sustains us? Psychologists, sociologists, and evolutionary anthropologists say it behooves us to take a more curatorial approach when it comes to our friends, because who you hang out with determines who you are. Quote, we take it for granted, but having friends is exceedingly rare in the animal kingdom, said Dr. Nicholas Christakis, a professor of social and natural science at Yale University. Um, friendship is an evolutionary advantage, he says, that allows us to form alliances, cooperate, exchange ideas, and learn from one another. Having friends who encourage, stimulate, and support you is associated with improved immunity, lower blood pressure, and higher cognitive function. Having no friends, toxic friends, or superficial friends not only can make you feel insecure, lonely, or depressed, but also can accelerate cellular aging and increase your risk of premature death. Now, the uh, only thing I find objectionable here is the assumption that we've all been hiding from the world for the past year, and now we have to find a way to rebuild our lives from scratch. That may be the case for some people, especially those living in liberal cities, but it's not the case for me or a lot of other people. I made absolutely no changes to my life over the past year, except for those that I was forced to make. Places closed down, and so I could not go into those places. But outside of, uh, outside of you know, that's outside of my control. As for the things I could control, I carried on exactly as I had before. These kinds of articles are yet another indication that the people trying to speak to us, and in many cases for us, in the mass media, are unable to successfully do either of those things because they live in a different universe. To use their language, they can't relate to our lived experience. That's why we're getting all of these articles and cable news segments about how to reclaim and restart our lives. It's a little confusing because many of us never stopped living our lives in the first place. When somebody asks us what we'll do now that the pandemic is over, our response is that we'll keep doing exactly what we've been doing this entire time. No significant change, really. But that's not why people were outraged over the article. The outrage came from this passage. Quote, Indeed, Depressed friends make it more likely you'll be depressed. Obese friends make it more likely you'll become obese. And friends who smoke or drink a lot make it more likely you'll do the same. The reverse is also true. You'll be more studious, kind, and enterprising if you consort with studious, kind, and enterprising people. That's not to say that you should abandon your friends when they're having a hard time, but it's a good idea to be mindful of who you're spending the majority of your time with, whether on or offline, because your friends' prevailing moods, values, and behaviors are likely to become your own. What are the hallmarks of good foreground friends? Foremost, they make you feel better about the world and yourself. So there it is. People were very upset about that. They were upset specifically that the writer Murphy, Murphy mentioned how you're more likely to be depressed and obese if you surround yourself with a bunch of sad, fat people. Not her words exactly, but that was the general point. There was uh, much outrage over that idea, so much so that New York, the New York Times actually deleted that passage that I just read and added this editor's note a few days ago. It says, quote, this article has been updated to remove references to studies that examined issues related to friendships and obesity, depression, and tobacco and alcohol use. The article's references to those studies lacked sufficient context and attribution and did not adequately convey their relevance to the issues discussed in the article. But what's wrong with what she said? It's true that we tend to mirror the behaviors and attitudes of the people we choose to spend most of our time with. It's true that you should consider that when deciding who you spend time with. She specifically said that she's not urging people to ditch their depressed or obese friends on the spot. She isn't suggesting that you do like a weigh-in or something before you get together. Right? You're too fat. Get out of here. She isn't saying that if your friend calls you up and says, hey, uh, man, I'm, I'm feeling pretty down lately, that you should respond, ew, get away from me. I mean, that's not quite the point. The point is simply that you should consider the influences that you allow into your life. People who aren't striving to better themselves or not trying to improve as human beings are content to you know, simply wallow in their laziness and misery all the time. Those are the people that you definitely don't need in your life. That doesn't describe every person who's overweight or depressed, obviously, but it's a, it's a good general rule to follow. The problem, though, is that Murphy misses her own point. You know, She says that our foreground friends, 
the technical term here is BFF, those friends should uh, make you feel better about the world and yourself. Well, that's, that's incorrect. You shouldn't be looking for friends who simply make you feel better about yourself. In fact, if that's all you want, then you'd probably surround yourself with more miserable, ugly people because you look so good in comparison. The job of a friend is not to make you feel good about yourself. The job of anyone who loves you, whether it's a family member, a friend, a spouse, whoever, is to make you a better person, to help you be a better person, to help you towards holiness. St. Thomas Aquinas said that to love is to will the good of the other. All people who love you should be willing the good for you. It doesn't mean delivering lectures and sermons or anything like that. It just means that they should want for you to be a good person and to live a truly good and healthy and happy life. And you need all of those things together. Good, healthy, happy. If you choose just happy and that's all you're focused on, oftentimes you'll end up with something that is the opposite of healthy and good. So good should come first and then healthy and happy. That's what you should want for yourself and your friends. A revealing indication of what sort of friends you have, and this is mentioned in the article, in fairness, is how your friends react when genuinely good things happen to you. Or when you do a genuinely good thing and you're enjoying the rewards of that action which you won't always enjoy the rewards of a good action, but sometimes you do. And a real friend will be happy for you, like really happy as if it had happened to them. But some, quote, friends will make it about themselves. They'll try to pull you down into their misery and their failure. They'll make you feel almost guilty for experiencing the good in life. Those are the people you don't need. They should be dropped immediately and with little concern for their feelings. A harsh wake-up call would probably do them well. And I suspect that the people upset about the article are mostly the bad friend types. They're the ones who bring nothing to their friendships, are nothing but a drain and a strain on those around them, and they're constantly trying to drag all of their supposed loved ones down into the muck of their own dreary self-centeredness. And they think they should have the right to act like that and still retain all of their relationships. Well, they don't. And that is all generally the point the article was trying to make, I think, though it does miss the mark in some important respects, but not in the areas that the critics are upset about. So for that reason, the critics are canceled. And also, I guess the writer of the article is canceled. And the New York Times is canceled. And uh, bad friends are canceled too. So throw them all out at once. More efficient that way. And we'll leave it there for today. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Godspeed. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Walsh Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producers are Mathis Glover and Robert Sterling. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Production manager, Pavel Vodosky. The show is edited by Sasha Tolmachov. Our audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is done by Nika Geneva. And our production coordinator is McKenna Waters. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2021. Nickelodeon tries to trans the kids. Fauci fights back against his critics. And Joe Biden undermines our democracy. Check it out on The Michael Knowles Show. <laughs>